Hello, everyone. I'm Billy. And I'm Kamran. Welcome to the Horse Frog Podcast, home of your two favorite professional digressors and the creators of the Malazan Brotherhood. Today, we'll be discussing Book 2, Chapter 7 of Dead House Gates, a novel in the Malazan Books of the Fallen. This is Part 2 of our coverage of this chapter. This podcast series is intended to be a companion to reading or listening to the books set in the Malazan universe. It's not a book review, and it is most definitely not intended to be a replacement to reading the books. Both Billy and I know this to be the best fantasy story ever written and want to share our love of the series with you. We will be covering the events of the books in a linear fashion, and there will be spoilers for those that have not read the books. We will try not to spoil anything prior to us covering that portion of the respective books, but knowing me and my big mouth, I'm, may, well, you know what? I'm still not sorry. I've been pretty good. Past few episodes, I'm pretty good. I've almost. You have been good. I've been good. Almost dropped in a couple of weeks back, but I've been good. So I'm okay so far. So yeah. I'm going to pass on. <laughs> Move along. <laughs> <laughs> a quick warning. Today's episode contains fiery descriptions of violence. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised. Our show is listener-supported, and if you would like to support us, we'd really appreciate that. You can do so by visiting our Patreon link on our website at horsefrogproductions.com. Currently, we're posting ad-free episodes on Patreon weekly. Also, we'd really like to hear from you. Send any feedback or comments to contact at horsefrogproductions.com. We have an addition today. I had some homework due <laughs> coming back on the size of the jade statue that Hebrick touched that messed him up. So we had previously stated that according to the CDC in the United States, the circumference of the 50th percentile 18-year-old male index finger is 2.2 inches, and the height of a 50th percentile 18-year-old male is 69.5 inches, so almost six feet. I think it's like five, what does that amount to, like five, nine and a half or something like that? Yeah, that's probably right. If the circumference of the jade finger is 300 feet, then the height would be roughly... 9,477 feet or 1.8 miles, if my math was Good. done correctly. Good gracious. Holy moly. That's huge. Or huge, as the uh, President Trump used to say. I love that, guys. Huge. 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 There's, no, yeah, there's no H in there. It's just huge. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, dude. That blows me away. Allegedly, his hands are larger than the 100th percentile. Right. right. He didn't make a comment about his hands. <laughs> I, think, I think he did. He, he probably did. I'm sure he did. He's got a remark about right. everything. That's a fact. All right. Yeah. So if my math is correct, yeah, 1.8 miles. That's Dude, a big, big boy. That's, even, that's wild. All right. Chapter seven, part two. We pick up the chapter where we left off with Felicin, Hebrick, and Bodden. The last we had seen, Bodden had to go back and carry Hebrick after he collapsed while carrying the pack with the food in it. Felicin had outright refused to help carry the pack upon Bodden's request. The next night, they found the spring an hour before the moon rose. It was at the base of a stone depression. The surface appeared to be gray mud. Bodden went down to its edge, but didn't attempt to retrieve any water from it. After a moment, Felicin dropped the food pack from her shoulders and stumbled down to kneel beside him. At least this time she carried the food pack. Right? I was mildly irritated by Felicin's um, disrespect to her elders last week. Yeah, uncalled for. Yes. The gray mud was made of drowned cape moths. Felicin reached toward the pool, but Bodden's hand snapped out and grabbed her wrist. Bodden said, it's fouled, full of cape moth larvae feeding off the bodies of their parents. Felicin thought, hood's breath, not more larva. She said, strain the water through a cloth. Bodden shook his head and said, the larva piss poison. Fill the water with it. Eliminates any competition. It'll be a month before the water's drinkable. She said, we need it, Bodden. Bodden said, it'll kill you. She stared down at the gray sludge and thought, this can't be. We'll die without this. Now, Bodden had warned her about taking that extra sip of water. Now she's really going to pay for it. Yes, she will. Uh, yeah, she is a child. But this behavior in a survival situation is really like, it's costly to the party. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it you is really have to stick together at times like these. Yes, it's quite costly to the party. Hence my irritation with her. Because it's not just mm -hmm. at her. It's at her for these two men that are saddled with this responsibility of this young woman who is irritating. Bodden turned away. Hebrick had arrived. His skin was black as the night, yet shimmering silver as the etched highlights of the boar hair reflected the stars overhead. The infection in the stump of his right wrist had begun to fade, leaving a separating, crackled network of split skin. It exuded a strange smell of powdered stone. 
In answer to his nightmarish appearance, Felicin laughed on the edge of hysteria. She said, remember the round Hebrick in Unta? Hood's acolyte, the priest covered in flies, who was not but flies. He had a message for you. And now what do I see? Staggering into view, a man a swarm, not in flies, but in tattoos. Different gods, but the same message. That's what I see. Let Fainer speak through those peeling lips, old man. Will your God's words echo hoods? Is the world truly a collection of balances, the infinite tottering to and fro of fates and destinies? Boar of summer, tusk sower of war. What do you say? Hebrick stared at her, then opened his mouth, but no words came forth. She cupped an ear and asked, what was that? The buzzing of wings? Surely not. Bodden muttered, fool. Let's find a place to camp, not here. Phyllisson said, ill omens, murderer? I never knew they meant anything to you. Bodden said, save your breath, girl. She replied, makes no difference, not now. We're still dancing in the corner of a god's eye, but it's only for show. We're dead, for all our twitching about. What's Hood's symbol in seven cities? They call him the hooded one here, don't they? Out with it, Bodden. What's carved on the Lord of Death's temple in Aaron? Bodden said, I'd guess you already know. Phyllisin said, Kate Moths, the harbingers, the eaters of rotting flesh. It's the nectar of decay for them, the rose bloating under the sun. Hood delivered us a promise in the round in Unta, and it's just been fulfilled. Bodden climbed to the rim of the depression. He turned and looked down on her and said, so much for your river of blood. Phyllisin became dizzy and her legs buckled and she abruptly sat down. She glanced over to see Hebrick lying huddled an arm span away. The soles of his moccasins had worn through, revealing ravaged, glistening flesh. She thought, was he already dead? As good as. Phyllisin said, do something, Bodden. Bodden remained silent. She asked, how far to the coast? After a moment, Bodden said, doubt it would matter. The boat was to have patrolled for three or so nights, no longer. We're at least four days from the coast and getting weaker by the hour. She asked, and the next water? Bodden said, about seven hours walk, maybe like 14, the shape we're in. Phyllisin snapped. You seemed spry enough last night, running off to collect Hebrick. You don't seem as parched as us either. He said, I drink my own piss. <laughs> man, this guy is on another level. <laughs> yes, he is, man. This reminds me, there's a, I'm sorry, I'm going to aside here to Black Adder. They're doing some, he's trying to impress the queen, Black Adder is, so he's taking a crew to go exploring and they're really faking it but they they get to the point they get to the drinking their own water stage as it were is what they call it mm -hmm. um and as they're sitting around looking really awful and rugged and, and rough they get to saying you know well, where, where, where's the captain he says i'm trying to decide whether to divvy this stuff up he goes the captain no, no, no. he's already been drinking his own for weeks something about liking the mm -hmm. taste you know <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's like wow uh, or I'm also reminded of Bear Grylls, who did, did some uh, human water drinking. I was watching some video about the medical effects of this person that was drinking seven liters of soda every day for mm. like 20 years. Oh. The person that was talking about it described the medical terms, where their names came from for diabetes. And apparently it's related to the taste of the urine, whether it tastes sweet or whether it doesn't taste sweet because depending on whether you're diabetic or not. So like this came from the middle ages. It makes sense. I guess they used to taste the stuff. I, I guess they may have, and they may have smelled it. Here's, I don't know if you know this, but you can smell it on some people's breath. The sweetness of breath on a diabetic can, mm. be, can be smelled okay. also if it's bad enough. And it's, I mean, it's, it's one of these things. It's not unpleasant. That's the weird thing about it. It's like your breath smells really sweet. And it's like, oh, and if they tell you you've got diabetes, it's like you realize it's what it is that, that can lead them to having sweet breath because of the sugar in their blood, I think. Mm -hmm. So yes, it, apparently it can be very, very sweet or something. I don't, it's something with this, with your blood glucose. I do know that. So Okay. So this is really diving deep on this. <laughs> Before I transferred up to the fries, in Dallas, where we work together, uh -huh. you know, I spent several years working at the one down here in Houston. Right. And there was this one lady. I don't remember a lot of customers I had, but this one lady left quite the impression on me. I don't know how this topic came up. I was selling her a computer. And as I was writing up her quote, she started talking about one of her friends who looked really young. And this woman was probably late 50s, early 60s. She asked, do you want to know what her secret is? I know what the and secret is. I was is. like, okay. 
I know Hold on. You can tell me. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to confirm it with you because I've heard this, I think. She, she wouldn't tell me verbally. She wrote it down on a piece of paper. She wrote down urine therapy. Yeah. <laughs> this is like one of the few people I remember selling a computer to. <laughs> yeah, that'll stand out, won't it? Yes. I've heard that rumor somewhere long ago about the, about Elvis doing this to maintain his looks. Okay. Wa- washing oneself with, is that what you're meaning? Is that what you're implying from this? I've heard washing one's face with her own. I didn't really delve too far into the topic with exactly. on this. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I've heard this about him doing this. So I know, it, I knew it's strange when you said that, I knew exactly what you're talking about. Why do I know that? I know why yeah. I know that my late wife, that's her knowledge. That's weird knowledge she impl- imparted to me. So Interesting. Is Elvis. Shall we move along from the, yes, please. the urine deep dive? Please. <laughs> please. Enough number ones. Enough number ones, please. We're not going to number two, Billy. No. Let's just keep yes, going with along. this. Move along, sir. We are higher brow than that, sir. I can't believe we went that low. Sorry. It was very medical it was, conversation, right. Billy. That was, that's correct. That's correct. We kept it high level. We we, right? it, we kept we kept it clinical. We didn't go in the gutters. <laughs> yep. Oh, good gracious. Felison asked, "You what?" Bodin grunted, "You heard me." Felison thought for a moment, then said, "Not a good enough answer. And don't tell me you're eating your own shit too. It still would explain things. Have you made a pact with some god, Bodin?" Bodin said, "You think doing something like that's a simple task? Hey, Queen of Dreams, save me, and I'll serve you." Tell me, how many of your prayers have been answered? Besides, I ain't got faith in anything but me. Felicin asked, so you haven't given up yet? She thought Bodden wouldn't answer, but after a long minute in which she began to sink into herself, he startled her awake with a blunt no. He removed his pack, then skidded back down the slope. Something in his movements filled her with sudden dread. She thought, calls me plump, eyes me like a piece of flesh. Not to use like Beneth did, but more as if he's eyeing his next meal. Her heart hammered as she watched for the first move, a hungry flash in his small, bestial eyes. I don't think he looks like he's hungry. I think he looks, I think he's looking with her, at her with contempt. <laughs> well, I think she's looking for signs that he would be looking at her. Yes, I agree. With hunger in his eyes yeah. in this case. I agree. And yeah, the contempt thing I get because he's doing all this stuff. And she's just so vile. Yes. Again, she's obviously the victim of this situation and she's lashing out. But just factually, she's being really rude to these two that have done a lot for her. They laid their lives on the line for her. Yeah. And she thinks she's done it for them. It's like, no, no. <laughs> I think it started out that way, maybe. Like on the I boat. think on the ship, on the boat there, I think it did. She did think that they were getting some benefit from what was going on with Beneth. Well, she, right. She supposedly got Hamoric off of that harsher detail and got him into right. And then the plow. food they were supposedly getting food, food too, which he, which Bowden just, just, or I think in the previous chapter or the one before, yes, the escape said no. It was, I guess it was last that wasn't week. actually happening. Yeah, that's, yeah. that wasn't mm-hmm. happening. That, that wasn't happening. She got into top, yeah, but she, but the important thing is she thought it was happening. Yes, and they let her think it. Yeah. So that's kind of through that. That's kind of partially their fault in that aspect as well so yeah nobody's perfectly clean here no no they're all dirty (laughs) instead Bodin crouched down beside hebrick and pulled him onto his back he leaned close to listen for breath then sat back inside phyllison asked he's dead you do the skinning i won't eat tattooed skin no matter how hungry i am Bodin glanced at her momentarily but said nothing and returned his attention to hebrick phyllison said tell me what you're doing Bodden said he lives, and that alone may save us. How far you fall, girl, matters nothing to me. Just keep your thoughts to yourself. I think it's interesting that she was the one who was afraid of being eaten, but she was the first to suggest cannibalism verbally. <laughs> yeah. And based on Bodden's response, I don't think he was thinking of cannibalism at all. And would you attribute this behavior from Felicin to projection on her part? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I think that no matter how ruthless Bowden is or Bowden is, uh, cannibalism seems to be a line he's not yet willing to cross or even to think about because this guy's still alive, first and foremost, maybe in a bad way, but he's here. But and a lot of, but it's weird, though, that you say that cannibalism is a thing that a lot of people can cross a lot of lines before that, for some reason, emotionally, 
here if you talk to especially you know, i'm a fan of horror movies this is why this fascinates me to some extent i've read some actual treatises on cannibalism and it was how for some reason this is one that really bothers people filmically in, in a film sense more than anything else as cannibalism is one because it's like they can imagine a lot of things and we can imagine all kinds of gruesome horrific torturous hateful stuff done to somebody but cannibalism for some reason doing that is even more horrific i don't know if it's an insult thing on our part in the Western side of things, you know, because Western cannibalism also is also different from tribal cannibalism in lots of ways. Yeah, I think it is because from what I understand in New Guinea, part of it is they're taking in part of their ancestor. Yes. And it's more like a spiritual thing. You get that. Not you, for sustenance. Yeah, It's not. And it's not ever usually meant as an insult. It's like it's back in the day, like if they killed an enemy. You know, it was like to eat the guy was an honor because the guy was real strong or something mm -hmm. like that. So strangely enough, this is going to be an odd thing to say, and a lot of people won't understand this, but I've read, like I said, I read a, a, somebody's thesis, and all honesty, it was a thesis on film, in particular cannibalism in film. It's about the movie Cannibal Holocaust. It's actually very accurate because the, the people aren't cannibals, really. They are. They're, they're tribal cannibals, but they're pushed to this extreme by these hateful Westerners that come in and, and abuse these people. It's really an odd it's an odd anti-horror movie that's quite horrific. It's the original one, but I wouldn't. I don't recommend it. I mean, I'm not a big. I'm, I'm not a gorehound anymore. I've lost my taste. I've lost a lot of my thirst for blood. But a lot of that, mm -hmm. I've, I don't. I, I always for, don't forget this because it was. I found it kind of fascinating how so many people are. It's just one of these things. It's like, oh, when you watch a horror movie, if it's even hinted at, most people see the movie more horrifically and are more troubled by it, even though it may gloss over it. It's for, it's very troubling for folks. There are certain mechanisms built into us mm -hmm. that I think cannibalism falls within that. So, for example, there are mechanisms that prevent us from being attracted to our own family members for procreation purposes yes. to prevent inbreeding, right? And yes. so I think this would fall within that category potentially yes i'm just going out on a limb here i don't know factually if that's true but i suspect it is because you shouldn't be eating your own species no. probably <laughs> you, know, know, just, you know just not you know, naturally I, what should be happening and I, and I and i and i also am not going to condemn them poor folks in that kind of a live situation either where you know that's a different where you've got some bodies yeah about. where you've yeah. got some bodies laying around of your friends yeah that's going to be horrific but it's like live or die dude i, I listen if i'm already dead y'all have permission to eat me okay listen i ain't using the body <laughs> yeah but in that scenario they're starving to death yes there's no other nutrition options yes it, it, they're not choosing to go out and yeah. instead of having mcdonald's have exactly. sweetbreads for like cannibal right. lecture right. or whatever That's, it's not it's not like we're having a great time doing this it's like man we got to eat one of our buddies who's already dead but it's like good gracious we're starving it's like we're we're down to this and it's like you know i'm not condemning that yes i, I can't imagine what it's like to live through something like that having done that i'm sure their conscience condemns them enough as it is when it shouldn't mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of just horrendous scenes, the Hannibal movie yeah. at the end with Ray Liotta, <laughs> oh, where yeah. Yeah. he uh, <laughs> cracks his skull open and yeah. he's still alive. And Let's, you know why that's so great? It's it's not just that it's the it's not the material. It's not it's not all it's not all the actor. Which let's. But I mean, I love I love Anthony Hopkins. I'm still miffed that it's not Brian Cox because I do love Brian Cox. But Ridley Scott is such a great director. Is he not? That's a great Ridley Scott movie. Yeah, it's good. I wish they hadn't switched out Jodie Foster. Yeah. For, what's her name? Yeah, I, I can't remember her name. You kept I Anthony like Hopkins. Yeah. I guess Jodie Foster I, probably wasn't interested in it. Yeah. They couldn't get her for it. But to me, the continuity would have been really important there. Oh, yeah, because I love the woman that replaced her. But she, she wasn't the original, so, yeah. All right, moving along. Moving along. <laughs> Felicin watched Bodden peel Hebrick's rotting clothing away. The tattoos beneath were revealed. Bodden was looking for something. Felicin said, a raised nape, the ends pulled down and almost touching, almost a circle. It surrounds a pair of tusks. Bodden's eyes narrowed on her. She explained, Feyner's own mark, the one that's sacred. It's what you're looking for, isn't it? He's excommunicated, yet Feyner remains within him. That much is obvious by those living tattoos. Bodden asked, and the mark? How did you come to know such things? Phyllisin said, a lie I spun for Beneth. I needed Hebrick to support it. I needed details of the cult, he told me. 
You mean to call on the god? Bodin said, found it. Phyllison asked, now what? How do you reach another man's god, Bodin? There's no keyhole in that mark, no sacred lock you can pick. Bodin jerked at that, and he stared at her. She didn't blink, revealed nothing. She innocently asked, How do you think he lost his hands? Bodin said, He was a thief once. Phyllisin said, He was. But it was the excommunication that took them. There was a key, you see. The high priest warned to his god, tattooed on the palm of his right hand, held to the sacred mark, hand to chest, basically as simple as a salute. I spent days healing from Beneth's beating, and Hebrick talked, told me so many things. I should have forgotten all of it, you know, drinking Durhang tea by the gallon, but that brew just dissolved the surface, that filter that says what's important, what isn't. His words poured in unobstructed and stayed. You can't do it, Bodden. Bodden raised Hebrick's right forearm and studied the glistening stump in the growing light. Phyllisin said, you can never go back. The priesthood made sure of that. He isn't what he was, and that's that. With a silent snarl, Bodden pulled the forearm around to push the stump against the sacred mark. The air screamed. The sound battered them, flung them both down to scrabble, claw mindlessly dig into the rock, away from the pain. There was such agony in that shriek. It descended like fire, darkening the sky overhead, spreading hairline fissures through the bedrock, the cracks spreading outward from under Hebrick's motionless body. Blood streamed from her ears as Felicin tried to crawl away, up the trembling slope. Hebrick's tattoos had blossomed out from his body and turned into fissures in the stone that swept under her. The rock was slick and greasy under her palms. Everything had begun to shake. Even the sky seemed to twist. The scream was unending. Rage and unbearable pain meshed together. Something struck the ground. The bedrock under her shuddered and threw her upward. She came back down hard on one elbow. The bones of her arms shivered like the blade of a sword. The glare of the sun dimmed as Felicin fought for air. Her wide eyes caught a glimpse of something beyond the basin. Two-toed, a fur-snarled hoof, too large for her to fully grasp, rising up, pulled skyward into a midnight gloom. The tattoo had leapt from stone to the air itself, a woad-stained web growing in crazed, jerking blots, snapping outward in all directions. She could not breathe. Her lungs burned. She was dying, sucked airless into the void that was a god's scream. That was really intense. <laughs> not exactly what they were expecting. No, I it, take it. Yeah, that's, it's extremely intense. It's so short, too. And, it's like, and I'm like, yeah, I was expecting something, uh, even though I kind of expecting this, I kind of forget that this is coming until it happens. I was expecting something more subtle until it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow, that's pretty, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. The visuals of that massive hoof would be neat to see as well. Yes. And uh, again, I think that I, we, the royal we, sorry, have mentioned <laughs> numerous times the visual sweep of Erickson's writing. And I can always see every bit of his scenes in my head really clearly. And I'm used to a great deal of writers, a great deal of writers that I have loved and love still immensely. But a lot of times when they're talking and things happen until things happen, do you feel that the character sometimes exists in a vacuum? Does that make sense to you what I'm talking about? Like, they don't feel connected to the world sometimes, even though they're in the world. People are just talking around this world and Erickson's world. I, you know, his, When they're in the world, I feel it's always there. Yeah. So I think it comes down to the way the world is constructed and whether it feels lived in. Okay. I guess that's all. I guess that's how all it is. So here's some other example: Dune, which yes. is also an amazing book. Yes. Think about it. Feels the Arrakis. same. I, I, it feels Arrak the same. Yeah. Right. Arrakis has that vibe to me. A little bit more lighthearted. The Harry Potter series. Okay. I've not been. I, I, I don't. I've not read them, but I'm looking forward to playing this video game about Hogwarts. If that helps you, so. Oh, Hogwarts Legacy. Yeah, it's, it looks like it's a pretty good game. Okay. <laughs> okay. That witch and wizarding world also feels lived in by those characters right i think you bring up a good point so part of it might be the fact that when erickson talks about having to paint a fantasy world you have to introduce concepts to people if he was explaining our world it's simple they go to paris you don't have to describe paris everybody knows what paris yeah. looks like right yeah but if he talks about going to darujistan 
we have to paint the picture yeah. of the city of the blue lights with the rooftops, with the yeah. thieves highways and all this kind of stuff is next to a lake and there's walls and there's the, the estate district and the high gallows hill, all this stuff, right? Yeah. If you're in a fantasy realm and they don't do a good job of fleshing out these areas, I could see how all you have is the characters to go off of Yeah. because the world itself doesn't play as large of a part. It's yes. more of a character driven story and, and, and most most things are but this is what to me makes his character driving so much more important is his world makes his characters more believable more real mm -hmm. if i guess is i guess it's what it, as it were it's they're more they are way more real yeah but yeah great scene <laughs> it's an amazing Definitely. scene felicin heard sudden silence out beyond the ringing echoes in her skull air flooded her cold and bitter yet sweeter than anything she had known Felicin coughed and spat bile as she pushed herself onto her hands and knees, then shakily raised her head. The hoof was gone. The tattoo hung like an afterimage across the entire sky, which slowly faded as she watched. Movement caught her attention. Bodden had been on his knees with his hands cupping the sides of his head. He now slowly straightened, tears of blood filling the lines of his face. The ground under her feet felt strangely fluid. Felicin tottered to her feet. She looked down, blinking dumbly at the mosaic of limestone. The swirling furred patterns of the tattoo still trembled and rippled outward from her moccasins as she struggled for balance. She thought, the cracks, the tattoos, they go down and down, all the way down. As if I'm standing atop a bed of league-deep nails, each nail kept upright only by the others surrounding it. Have you come from the abyss, Fainer? It said your sacred warren borders chaos itself. Fainer, are you among us now? She turned to meet Bodden's eyes. They were dull with shock, though she could detect the first glimmers of fear burning through. Felicin said, We wanted the god's attention, not the god himself. A trembling seized her. She wrapped her arms around herself, then forced out the words, And he didn't want to come. We have previously discussed the two-way street between the gods and their followers. Yes. The gods get their power from the warship, but that warship comes with strings. Yeah, and we've heard this a lot, but this just seems to be that the most direct influence we've yet seen, isn't it? Perrin forcing Opan oh. into Dragnapur oh. is the only other instance I can That's think true. of where, and he's not really a follower. He had chance yes. to draw upon, but he's still it's it's, but it's almost similar the same concept. Thing. Yeah, very similar concept. Mm. Okay, nice. So that's two in two books. Yeah, because wow. I, I was also thinking, have we ever encountered this scenario before where the mortals so actively held a god's destiny in their hands? Right. I had to really think back. But yeah, that's the only other one I can yeah, think you're of. You're right. That's where forces them to do something. Yeah, very similar. I agree. I'll take it. Okay. So this is also something that's pretty important in the general timeline of the Malazan Book of the Fallen. Yes. This incident happening at this time. So if any future events happen that are linked to this, we're keeping a timeline to tie everything together because the books later on do tend to jump around date wise. So we want to try to keep everything lined up in a way that people understand what's happening simultaneously. Yes. Yes. You've been helping me wrap my mind around that by going through this like this. So I've really enjoyed that. I'm glad to hear it. Bodden's flinch was momentary. Then he rolled his shoulders in something that might have been a shrug. He said, he's gone now, ain't he? Felicin asked, are you sure of that? And this is in reference to whether Fainer is in the mortal realm. Right. Bodden turned his attention to Hebrick. After a moment's study, he said, he breathes steadier now, not so wrinkled and parched. Something's happened to him. She sneered, the reward for missing getting stomped on by a hair's breadth. Bodden grunted, his attention suddenly elsewhere. She followed his gaze. The pool of water was gone, drained away until only the carpet of Cape Moth corpses remained. Felicin barked a laugh and said, some salvation we've had here. Mm. Got to be careful what you wish for. Well, there was salvation here, just not theirs. <laughs> <laughs> Hebrick slowly curled himself into a ball and whispered, he's here. Bodden said, we know. Hebrick continued, in the mortal realm, vulnerable. Phyllisen said, you're looking at it the wrong way. 
The God you no longer worship took your hands. So now you pulled him down. Don't mess with mortals. Either her cold tone or brutal words in some way steeled through Hebrick. He uncurled, raised his head, then sat up. He looked at Felicin and said, out of the mouth of babes. Bodin said, so he's here. How can a god hide? Hebrick rose to his feet and said, I'd give what's left of an arm to study a field of the deck right now. Imagine the maelstrom among the ascendants. This is not a fly speck visitation, not a pluck and strum on the strands of power. He lifted his arms and frowned down at the stumps. He said, it's been years, but the ghosts are back. Bodin asked, ghosts? Hebrick explained, the hands that aren't there, echoes, enough to drive a man mad. He shook himself, squinted at the sun and said, I feel better. Bodin said, you look it. The heat was building. In an hour, it would soar. Felicin scowled and said, healed by the god he rejected. It doesn't matter. If we stay in our tents today, we'll be too weak to do anything come dusk. We have to walk now to the next waterhole. If we don't, we're dead. She thought, but I'll outlive you, Bodin, enough to drive the dagger home. She really has it out for him. Oh, she really is a nasty little thing. Um, I'm looking forward to where we'll get the, I'm curious, do we, do we get to like her? Or do we just continue to dislike her and feel sorry for her? No comment. Yeah. I think it's kind of more of the latter, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Bodden shouldered his pack. Hebrick grinned, slung his arms through the straps of the food pack. He rose easily, though taking a step to catch his balance once he straightened. Bodden led the way. Phyllisin fell in behind him. She thought, a god stalks the mortal realm yet is afraid. He has power unimaginable, yet he hides. And somehow Hebrick had found the strength to withstand all that had happened, and the fact that he's responsible. This should have broken him, shattered his soul. Instead, he bends. Could his wall of cynicism withstand such a siege for long? What did he do to lose his hands? Felicin had her own inner turmoil to manage. Her thoughts plundered every chamber in her mind. She still envisaged murder, yet felt a vaguely mocking wave of comradeship for her two companions. She wanted to run from them, sensing that their presence was a vortex tugging her into madness and death, yet she knew that she was also dependent on them. Behind her, Hebrick said, we'll make it to the coast. I smell water, close. To the coast, and when we get there, Felicin, you will find that nothing has changed, nothing at all. Do you grasp my meaning? She sensed a thousand meanings to his words, yet understood none of them. Up ahead, Bodden gave a shout of surprise. Do you grasp Hebrick's meaning there? I don't. And unless he is somehow making use of a little prescience and can somehow see what's at the coast and they're getting to the coast of freedom, I don't know what he's alluding to. Yeah, that's a little confusing for me. Yeah, it is me too. We are taken to Icarium and Mapo. Mappo's thoughts traveled westward, almost 800 leagues, to a dusk not unlike this one, but two centuries past. He'd known centuries already, wedded to war in what had become an ever-repeating cycle of raids, feuding and bloody sacrifices before the god of honor. Youth's game, and he'd long grown weary of it. Yet he'd stayed, nailed to a single tree, but only because he'd grown used to the scenery around it. It was amazing what could be endured when in the grip of inertia. These last two sentences hit me pretty hard. It makes me wonder how much of what we do is because it's too disruptive to our lives to do anything else, even when what we're doing doesn't really give us fulfillment. This is a highlighted quote from my first read through. So for me, I know this to be a fact. Am I not too distance past? I would put up with a lot to avoid disruption of services, shall we say? And I don't mean like any weird way. I just mean in the communication kind of way. I get to my routine and kept my head down in most aspects of my life because it, it is easier to kind of keep your head down and go because you get through, you get on through. But I know it seems strange because I'm out going, but it can be kind of a camouflage. But now that I'm older and since I've lost a wife, I've tried to be a little bit more open to change <laughs> than, than I used to be because change is going to happen. But I do know for a fact, as we get older, most people do not like it. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot about a convenience. It's, it's, 
so, uh, there's there's some fear involved, but I think it's mostly convenience. You know what to expect. <laughs> you get your setup. You yeah. got your schedule. Yeah, exactly. You're used to it. Everything's running smoothly. Yeah. So if an opportunity presents itself, you might convince yourself not to pursue it because you're afraid of messing all that up. Yes. And that's a very big possibility as well. And like I said, I'm trying to be more open. <laughs> mm. This is a lot more open. Hey, doing something like this is a really big open thing for me. So. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you're a podcaster now. You've been doing this for a year and a half. That's true. That's just, wow, it's weird we're to We're actually that. coming up on... <laughs> we're coming up on a one-year anniversary for the Malazan launch. I think it was mid-October, October 14th or something wow. like that. So when we record either the next one or the one after that, that's going to be our anniversary episode of the Malazan right, stuff. Right so on. you've been doing this long enough to legitimately say, I am a, I am podcaster. a podcaster. I am a podcaster, sir. <laughs> I am a podcaster, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Mappo had reached a point where anything strange, unfamiliar, was cause for fear. But unlike his brothers and sisters, Mappo could not ride that fear across the full span of his life. For all that, it had taken the horror he now approached to prize him from the tree. He had been young when he walked out of the trader town that was his home. He was caught, like so many of his age back then, in a fevered backlash, rejecting the rotting immobility of the trail towns and the elder warriors who'd become merchants trading in veteran goats and sheep, and now relived their fighting paths in the countless taverns and bars. He embraced the wandering ways of old, willingly suffered initiation into one of the backland clans that had retained the traditional lifestyle. His memories remained sharp. And in his mind, he once again strode across the plain. The ruins of the trader town where he'd been born were now visible. A month had passed since its destruction. The bodies of the 15,000 slain, those that had not burned in the raging fires, had long since been picked clean by the plain's scavengers. He returned home to bleached bone, fragments of cloth, and heat-shattered brick. The ancient shoulder women of his adopted clan had divined the tale from the flat bones they burned, as the nameless ones had predicted months earlier. While the trail of the towns had become strangers to them all, they were kin. The task that remained was not, however, one of vengeance. This pronouncement silenced the many companions who, like Mappo, had been born in the destroyed town. No, all notions of vengeance must be purged in the one chosen for the task ahead. Thus were the words of the nameless ones who foresaw this moment. Mappo still did not understand why he had been chosen. He believed he was no different from his fellow warriors. Vengeance was sustenance, more than meat and water, the very reason to eat and drink. You know, for real quick here, I always have a hard time reconciling that version of Mappo <laughs> with who he is. Yeah, he's, well, he's, he was a warrior for a couple yeah. hundred years, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And I kind of forget yeah. that because so when you when we meet Mappo, dude, he's pretty chill. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's a pretty chill boy. So yeah. I like that. I like him yeah. a lot. The ritual that would purge him would destroy all that he was. You will be an unpainted hide, Mappo. The future will offer its own script, writing and shaping your history anew. What was done to the town of your kin must never happen again. You will ensure that. Do you understand? Expressions of dreadful necessity. Yet, without the horrific destruction of the town of his birth, Mappo would have defied them all. He'd walked the overgrown main street with its riotous carpet of weeds and roots and had seen the glimmer of sun-bleached bones at his feet. Near the market round, he discovered a nameless one awaiting him, standing in the clearing's center, the robe's hood drawn back to reveal a stern woman's visage. Pale eyes met his as he approached. The staff she held in one hand seemed to writhe in her grip. She hissed, we do not see in years, Mappo replied, but in centuries. She said, it is well. Now, warrior, you must learn to do the same. Your elders shall decree it so. Mappo slowly looked around and squinted at the ruins. He said, it has more the feel of a raider's army. It's said that such forces exist south of Nemo. Her sneer surprised him with its unveiled contempt. She said, one day he shall return to his home as you've done here and now. Until that time, you must attend. He asked, why me, damn you? She gave him a faint shrug. Mappo asked, and if I defy you? She said, even that warrior will demand patience. She raised the staff then, the gesture drawing his eye. The twisting, buckling wood seemed to reach hungrily for him, growing, filling his world until he was lost in his tortured maze. 
the plot continues to thicken with these memories being revealed. Mm. I do like the slow drip feed of information on this topic. Oh yeah, and I prefer I always prefer a slow drip to over the big expo, the the big unexpected inexplicable expo dump. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh by the way, here. <laughs> <laughs> Blah. Yeah. <laughs> Mapo heard Akarium say, "Strange how a land untraveled can look so familiar." Mapo blinked, the memory scattered by the sound of that familiar soft voice. He glanced up at Akarium and said, Stranger still how the mind's eye can travel so far and so fast, yet return in an instant. Ikarium smiled. He said, With that eye, you might explore the entire world. Mapo said, With that eye, you might escape it. Ikarium's gaze narrowed as he scanned the rubble-strewn sweep of desert below. They'd climbed a tell, the better to see the way ahead. Ikarium said, Your memories always fascinate me, since I seem to have so few of my own and more so since you have always been so reluctant to share them. Mapo said, I was recalling my clan. It is astonishing the trivial things one comes to miss. Birthing season for the herds, the way we winnowed the weak in unspoken agreement with the plains wolves. He smiled and continued, The glory I earned when I'd snuck into a raiding party's camp and broken the tips of every warrior's knife, then sneaked back out with no one awakening. He sighed, I carried those points in a bag for years, tied to my war belt. Ikarium asked, what happened to them? Mapo said, stolen back by a cleverer raider. His smile broadened and he said, imagine her glory. Ikarium asked, was that all she stole? Mapo said, ah, leave me some secrets, friend. <laughs> that must have hurt. Yeah. To steal his trophy bag and his heart. Right. And I, I love this insight in the map. It, it really humanizes an already very human and kind character that is not human at all. And the idea of the guy, because I, I imagine he's a pretty big fella. You imagine he's what, six, seven, eight foot tall? He's a broad, I know he's kind of trolling. If Ikarium is approaching seven feet, I think he's high six feet. Yeah. Mapo is so, a little bit shorter, but he's at least six, five. Yeah. Pretty big guaranteed and, and wide. So the idea of a guy, this large of a, of a, uh, being able to sneak in through, you know, that's kind of impressive sneaking into camp, breaking tips off points of knives and sneaking out again before it was, before his points were taken from him. That's pretty cool, dude. Yeah. It, it kind of has a Spartan vibe to it. Doesn't it? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. You'd also have the, uh, it's, there's also the, oh, was it, uh, some of the, uh, Native Americans, it's kind of counting crow, wasn't it? Okay, that's probably more applicable here. I was thinking how the Spartans, if they stole food and didn't get caught, they were allowed to do it. But if they right, got caught, right. there was like severe punishment. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As long as you got away with it, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, but I think the, the Native American link is probably more accurate. Yeah, here. I think so too. Mapo Rosen said, if anything, that sandstorm has grown a third in size since we stopped. Hands on his hips, Ikarium studied the dark wall bisecting the plane. He said, I believe it has marched closer as well. Born of sorcery, perhaps the very breath of a goddess. Its strength still grows. I can feel it reaching out to us. Mapo nodded and said, Aye, surprising, assuming that Shaikh is indeed dead. Ikarium said, Her death may have been necessary. After all, can mortal flesh command this power? Can a living being stay alive being the gateway between Drajna and this realm? Mapo asked, you're thinking she's become ascendant and in doing so left her flesh and bones behind? Ikarium said, it's possible. Mapo fell silent. The possibilities multiplied each time they discussed Shaik, the whirlwind and the prophecies. Together, he and Ikarium were sowing their own confusion. He thought, and whom might that serve? Iskarl Puss's grinning face appeared in his mind. Breath hissed through his teeth and he growled, we're being manipulated. I can feel it. Smell it. Ikarium said, I've noted your raised hackles. For myself, I've become numb to such notions. I have felt manipulated all my life. Mapo shook himself to disguise his flinch. He softly asked, and who would be doing that? Ikarium shrugged, then looked at Mapo with a raised eyebrow. He said, I stopped asking that question long ago, friend. Shall we eat? The lesson needed here is that mutton stew is a taste superior to that of sweet curiosity. <laughs> Mapo studied Ikarium's back as the warrior strode down into camp. He thought, but what of sweet vengeance, friend? We are taken to Fiddler, Crocus, and Absalor. 
They rode down the ancient road. Even the Grawl gelding was stumbling with exhaustion, but Fiddler had run out of options. He had no answer to what was happening. Somewhere in the impenetrable sweeps of sand to their right, a running battle was underway. It sounded close, but of the combatants they could see no sign, nor was Fiddler of a mind to ride to investigate. In his fear and exhaustion, he'd arrived at a fevered, panicky conviction that staying on the road was all that kept them alive. If they left it, they would be torn apart. The battle sounds were not clashing steel, nor the death cries of men. The sounds were of beasts. Roars, snaps, snarls, nothing human. There might have been wolves in the unseen struggle, but other wholly different throats voiced their own frantic participation. The nasal groans of bears, the hiss of large cats, and other sounds, reptilian, avian, simian, and demons. Hmm. Mustn't forget those demonic barks. Hood's own nightmares couldn't be worse. He rode without reins. Both hands gripped the sand-pitted stock of his crossbow. It was cocked, a flamer quarrel knocked in place, and had been since the scrap began ten hours ago. Mm. Ten hours of battle. That's a long time to be terrified and attempting to run from it. Oh, my word. Talk about your high attention and wow. And can we just claim the entirety of Deadhouse Gates' core memory? <laughs> <laughs> There's so much going on. Just think about this chapter alone. You have the escape and fleeing across the desert by one company. Duker saw the fleeing of Coltane into the desert. We see the pulling down of a deity and saving of a disgraced priest of said deity. And this ongoing battle of soul taken and divers. I mean, dude, in an absolutely huge chapter. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> On the crossbow, the gut-wound cord was weary by now. The quarrel would not fly far, and its flight would be soft. But Fiddler needed neither accuracy nor range for the flamer to be effective. The knowledge that to drop the weapon would result in their being engulfed, he and his horse both, in raging fire, kept reminding him of that efficacy each time his aching, sweat-slick hands let the weapon slip slightly in his grip. <laughs> On the topic of the <laughs> mental state of a Malazan sapper... It does remind me of the movie Catch-22. Have you seen that? No. Because we all know what the Catch-22 is, that there is a Catch-22. We understand that's the impossible situation. I think um, you explained it a couple I? episodes ago, but okay. you want to just do a real quick oh, high real level quick, uh, real quick the pilots. The, uh, yeah. the pilots have to be – to be a pilot in Vietnam required you to be crazy. And to get out of the military, you had to be crazy. So they were caught that they could never be released. The pilots couldn't be released because they were crazy enough just to be very good pilots. <laughs> Right. It's, so they were stuck in there until they usually got killed. Mm -hmm. It's the Catch-22. <laughs> right. Fiddler's in that very much. They have that kind of same. It's They live on that razor's edge, dude. They're not quite crazy. Sappers in general. Yeah, they're, they're almost crazy. Some of them are. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll meet some interesting ones for sure. <laughs> some are more level-headed like Fid. Fiddler could not go on much longer. A single glance back over his shoulder showed Absalar and Crocus still with him. Their horses passed the point of recovery and now running until life fled their bodies. Not long now. And that's always tough to hear about. The horses that have been pushed too far and will die when they stop moving. Oh, yeah. And that's especially since we, I don't, since we have these magnificent horses that we get to like. They, some, some of the horses are very characters that stand out, including the face bite and growl horse here. I mean, we've, we thought he's an absolutely magnificent horse. Mm -hmm. Her. Her. Sorry. It's a female. Yeah, 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 I apologize. That's okay. Guard my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you better be careful, Billy. I want to miss into that horse. <laughs> right. The Grawl gelding screamed and slewed sideways. Fiddler was suddenly awash in hot liquid. Blinking and cursing, he shook the fluid from his eyes. Blood. A fainter born, hood-damned, gushing fountain of blood. It had shot out from the impenetrable airborne sand. Something got close. Something else stopped it from getting any closer. He thought, Queen's blessing, what in the abyss is going on? Crocus shouted. Fiddler looked back in time to see him leap clear of his collapsing mount. The animal's front legs folded under it. He watched the horse's chin strike hard on the cobbles, leaving a smear of blood and froth. It jerked its head clear in one last effort to recover, then rolled, legs kicking in the air a moment before they sagged and fell still. Fiddler gathered the reins and drew his gelding to a halt. He swung the stumbling beast around. He shouted, dump the tents to Crocus, who had regained his feet. Fiddler said, that's the freshest of the spare mounts. Quickly, damn you. Slumped in her saddle, Absalar rode close. 
Through cracked lips, she said, it's no use. We have to stop. Fiddler snarled and glared out into the biting sheets of sand. The battle was getting closer. Whatever was holding them back was giving ground. He saw a massive shape loom into view, then vanish again. It seemed to have leopards riding its shoulders. Off to one side, four hulking shapes appeared, low to the ground and rolling forward, black and silent. Fiddler swung the crossbow around and fired. The bolt struck the ground a half dozen paces from the four beasts. Sheets of flame washed over them. The creatures shrieked. This situation is just too much. It's getting really crazy here with all the different stuff that's approaching them right now. But it is absolutely amazing to to, to see it from our end and from the reader's point of view. It's just, oh, my good gracious. Yeah, just thinking about this wall of sand. Yes. And this fever pitch battle going on for 10 hours (laughs) that sounds like it's starting to break down and not in a good way. Harry, 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 Harry. Fiddler spared no time to watch, pulling at random another quarrel from the hardened case strapped to the saddle. He'd only a dozen quarrel-mounted Maranth munitions to start with. He was now down to nine, and of those, only one more cusser. He spared a glance as he loaded the quarrel, another flamer, then resumed scanning the wall of heaving sand. Shapes were showing, flashing like grainy ghosts. A dozen dog-sized winged reptiles shuddered into view twenty feet up, rising on a column of air. Isan Thanel, Hood's Breath. These are divers and soul-taken. A huge cape shape swept over the Isan Thanel, engulfing them. Crocus was frantically rummaging in a pack for the short sword he'd purchased in Erlatan. Absalar crouched beside him. Daggers glinted in her hands as she faced down the road. Fiddler was about to shout that the enemy was to her left when he saw what she'd seen. Three Grawl hunters rode shoulder to shoulder in full charge, less than a dozen horse strides from their position, their lances lowered. These guys just do not quit. No, they are some ruthless sons of guns. Wow. Just like their horses. Yeah. The range was too close for a safe shot. Fiddler could only watch as the warriors closed in. Time seemed to slow down as Fiddler stared, helpless to intervene. A massive bear bolted up from the side of the road, colliding with the Grawl rider on the left. The soul taken was as big as the horse it pulled down. Its jaws closed sideways around the warrior's waist, between ribs and hips, the canine sinking in almost past the far side. The jaws squeezed, then bile and blood sprayed from the warrior's mouth. Absalar sprang at the other two men. She flashed beneath the lance heads, both knives thrusted up and out as she slipped between the horses. Neither Grawl had time to parry. Each blade vanished up and under the ribcage, the one on the left finding a heart, the one on the right rupturing a lung. Then she was passed, leaving both weapons behind. A dive and a shoulder roll avoided the lance of a fourth rider Fiddler hadn't seen earlier. In a single fluid motion, Absalar regained her feet and sprang in an astonishing surge of strength and suddenly sat behind the Grawl, her right arm closing around his throat, her left reaching down over the man's head, two fingers sinking deep into each eye, then yanking back in time for the small knife that suddenly appeared in her right hand to slide back across the warrior's exposed throat. Man, she is awesome. Absolutely terrifying to see in action. Yes, true killing machine. And I agree. Absolutely amazing yet terrifying. To dare I say witness. That was great. (laughs) That was amazing. Fiddler's rapt attention was violently broken by something large and scaled whipping across his face, (laughs) knocking him from the saddle, sending his crossbow flying from his hands. He struck the road surface in an explosion of pain. Ribs snapped, the shattered ends grinding and tearing as he rolled onto his stomach. Any thoughts of trying to rise were quickly killed as a vicious battle burst into life directly above him. Hands behind his head, Fiddler curled himself tight, willed himself smaller. Bony hooves battered him. Clawed feet scored his chain armor, ravaged his thighs. One sudden push crushed his left ankle, then pivoted on what was left before lifting away. He heard his horse screaming, not in pain, but in terror and rage. The sound of the gelding's hooves connecting with something solid was a momentary flash of satisfaction amidst the pain flooding Fiddler's mind. A huge body thumped to the ground beside him, rolling to press a scaled flank against him. He felt the muscles twitching. The sounds of battle had ceased. Only the moaning wind and hissing sand was left. He tried to sit up but found he could barely lift his head. The scene was one of carnage. Immediately in front of him, within an arm's reach, stood the four trembling legs of his gelding. 
Off to one side lay his crossbow. Flamer gone. The weapon must have discharged when it struck the ground, catapulting the deadly quarrel into the storm. Just ahead, the lung-stabbed Grawl lay coughing blood. Standing over him speculatively was Absalar. A dozen paces past her, the hulking brown back of the soul-taken bear was visible, rippling as it tore at the meat of the horse it had brought down. Crocus stepped into view. He'd found his short sword but had yet to unsheath it. Fiddler felt a wave of compassion at the expression on the lad's face. Yeah, yeah imagine what Crocus is thinking here. Oh, yeah. This is it. <laughs> what Crocus is thinking. Fiddler reached one arm behind him. His hand found and rested against scaled hide. The twitches had ceased. The bear roared in sudden alarm. Fiddler twisted around in time to see the beast bolt away. He thought, oh, hood, if he's fleeing. <laughs> the trembling of the mare's legs increased, making them almost blurry to Fiddler's eyes. But the animal did not run, stepping only to interpose herself between the sapper and whatever was coming. The gesture rent the man's heart. Fiddler rasped, damn it, beast, get out of here. That horse is something else. Mm. I guess Fiddler really earned her loyalty. Yeah, and I love this crazy, magnificent, vicious, face-biting horse. It's a great, <laughs> what a character. Legendary. Yes. A character in her own right. Yes. Absalar was backing toward Fiddler. Crocus stood motionless. The sword fell from his hands. Fiddler finally saw the newcomer. Newcomers. Like a seething, lumpy, black carpet, the divers rolled over the cobbles. Rats. Hundreds. Yet one. Hundreds, thousands. He thought, oh, Hood, I know of this one. <coughs> Fiddler yelled, Absalar. She glanced at him expressionless. Fiddler said, in my saddlebag, a cusser. She said, not enough. Too late anyway. Fiddler said, not them, us. Mm. That tells you something. If he knows who this is and he's wanting to check out instead of deal with this individual. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's really scary. Well, I mean, I imagine having this dude eat you. That's a lot of mouths. Yeah. Slowly. Yeah. It would take a while. Oh. Not fun. No. Oh, it's awful. Absalar's reaction was a slow blink. Then she stepped up to the gelding. A stranger's voice rose above the wailing wind. Grillin! Fiddler thought, yes, that's the diver's name. Grillin, otherwise known as the Tide of Madness, flushed out of Egatan in the fire. Oh, it comes around. Don't it just? Mm. And that's an interesting bit of history there. <laughs> This is in reference to the first Malazan campaign of seven cities. A fire in the city of Egatan drove Grillin out. Must have been living below it or something, huh? Yeah, probably in their sewers or something like that. Or what, you know, it'd be quite happy down there in the dark. It's probably how it got so mm -hmm. big or the start of him getting big. The voice bellowed again, Grillin, leave here, divers. Hidebound legs stepped into view. Fiddler looked up, saw an extraordinarily tall man, lean, wearing a faded Tano Talaba. His skin was somewhere between gray and green. He held in his long-fingered hands a recurved bow and a rune-wrapped arrow, knocked and ready. His long gray hair showed remnants of black dye, making his mane appear spotted. Fiddler saw the ragged tips of tusks bulging the line of his thin lower lip. A jag. He thought, didn't know they traveled this far east. Why in Hood's name that should matter, I don't know. The jag took another step toward the heaving mass of rats that now covered what was left of the bear-killed horse and rider and laid a hand on the shoulder of the mare. The trembling stilled. Absalar stepped back, warily studying the stranger. Grillin was hesitating. Fiddler could not believe his eyes. He glanced again at the jag. Another figure had appeared beside the tall bowman. Short and wide as a siege engine, his skin a deep, warm brown, his black hair braided and studded with fetishes. If anything, his canines were bigger than his companions, and looking much sharper. A trell, a jag and a trell. Fiddler thought, that rings a tower full of bells. If only I could get through the pain to spare it another thought. The jag said, your quarry has fled. These people here do not pursue the trail of hands. Moreover, I now protect them. The rats hissed and twittered in a deafening roar and surged higher on the road. The jag slowly said, do not try my patience. A thousand bodies flinched. The tide withdrew in a wave of greasy fur. A moment later, they were gone. The trell squatted beside Fiddler and asked, you will live, soldier? Fiddler replied, seems I'll have to, if only to make some sense of what just happened. I should know you two, shouldn't I? 
The Trell shrugged and asked, Can you stand? Fiddler said, Let's see. He pulled an arm under him, pushed himself up an inch, and then remembered nothing more. He really got messed up. Oh, you know, I, I, I forgot about the ribs and the ankle in particular. Oh, that's a bad one. Yeah, the extra twist on the ankle. Yes. All right, and thus the chapter ends. What an mm. action-packed wow. chapter. Dude. At least this section of it. Wall. The first one was a little yeah. slower, I think, because it was just the, them going across the desert. It was, but it was sure building to, to this, so it's a great chapter. Right. For standout moments, Fainer getting ripped unwillingly into the mortal realm was spectacular uh, and incredibly yes. important at the same time. Yeah, I agree. I to- really, um, really amazing. Really totally sweet. <laughs> sweet. Yeah. The cursed granting of their wish mm. for salvation. The healing of Hebrick only to take their water. <laughs> that was fitting. Well, it is it is funny, but the water was already spoiled. They couldn't have that water. Well, it could have been purified. Water. Could have been purified. I don't know. Bond seemed to think that that was not it was, that was worthless. We're water. talking about divine powers here, Billy. Oh, that's true. It could have been purified by those people. That's true. Oh, oh, for their purposes, yeah. But he, but it did work because they, they did. Someone was saved. Yeah, it's someone was saved. Yeah. <laughs> They got what they asked for, or they got what bought and asked for. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I enjoyed Mappo's story about the knife tips and his bag of trophies getting stolen back by a female that potentially also stole his heart. Yeah. And I really love this insight into his past. That crazy battle that surrounded Fiddler and company for 10 hours plus. Can you imagine just sitting there waiting for that noise to break through and wipe you out, wipe out your friends? It'd be nerve wracking enough for five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. 10 hours, especially mm, with a impressive incendiary bomb in your crossbow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Careful that you don't drop it and burn yourself to pace it or right. burn yourself up. The nerves so. would be racked. Mm. Seeing Absalar's takedown of those two Grawl plus the third that she jumped on the back of that horse. That was pretty impressive stuff. Yes. Horrifyingly smooth as silk and hatefully effective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, she's something else. The appearance of Grillin. Yes. That is a truly horrific divers. We've seen a yes. bunch of them, but rats for some reason just hits different. It's the rat the sheer number. Yes. It's it's one thing to be like a hundred, which would be bad enough, but to think Fiddler put it at thousands. Right. Not thousand, but thousands mm-hmm. plural, is that's gotta be some powerful fella. Mapo Nakarium helping Fiddler, Crocus, and Absalar out. That was cool to see the convergence of those yeah. two storylines. Yes, I very much enjoyed seeing that. So it, it was kind of unexpected too, because it's like, man, it just—it's just about to get really bad here, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, and then these guys show up to save the day. It's really nice. And then seeing Grillin flinch when Nakarium warned him—that was pretty mm. cool. Yeah, I agree. I like that that Akarium is enough to f- put fear in anybody. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, man. That was an enjoyable chapter. Great job tonight. Great chapter. Yeah. Thanks, sir. Great job. Yeah. Really enjoyable. Thanks. Really enjoyable episode. Got any final thoughts before we drop off here? Yeah. Just what a wild ride. Great chapter. And while I'm reading this stuff, I I get so excited. I hold my breath. (laughs) (laughs) I find myself going... Oh man, this is so great! It's so great. Yeah, you know, it's such a good, it's such a great episode tonight, though, brother. Great time. Yeah. Always enjoy these episodes with you. Yeah, chapters like this is, especially with that battle just at the end, it's crazy. Yeah, we've had it's so fun. Chapter after chapter after chapter, it, they've been yes. great. Ten Ounce Gates is absolutely hands down just amazing. I mean, as much as and I love Gardens, but for some reason, I this this time through Dead House, I forgot just how action packed this one was. This makes Gardens of the Moon look slow and gardens of the moon is anything but slow yeah which makes me wonder when we get to memories of ice a lot of people prefer that to dead house gates i think the general consensus on the polls that i've seen is that memories of ice is the more popular of the two and possibly one of the most popular of all of the 10 books i get it is that gruntle yeah gruntle's in it yeah okay so when we get there i'm wondering i can't remember how action-packed it was i remember a lot of action in it but i don't remember how yeah. how dense it was let's just put it that way yeah but i don't remember chapter by chapter right excitement because it's, it's all seen as one giant you're like me we see this as giant one giant piece so until we examine it like we do here 
I forget how much happens in a specific part because it all rolls together as one giant piece, which is the joy of having a finished plot. Yeah. I don't think the pace is going to continue as it has this last couple chapters for the rest of Dead House Gates, though, because no, there's going to be some stuff that it's going to be difficult topic to get through. And it's not so much action packed stuff. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Yeah. See you all next week. We thank you all for joining us today. Again, we'd really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us, and we've had a really great time talking about the topic today. If you would like to support our show, you can find us at horsefrogproductions.com, where you can find our Patreon link. Depending on the platform you're listening from, it may also be in the episode description. And if you'd like to contact us uh, through email, it's at contact at horsefrogproductions.com. 